We continue our series in 1 Corinthians looking this morning at chapter 12, verses 12 through 31. And if you want to use the black Bibles there in your seats, that should be page 959. Last week, we, Paul, as we opened this chapter, was addressing the issue of one spirit and a variety of spiritual gifts. And now he continues to speak of the oneness of the church as he talks about the body. Let's attend now to the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable hearts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As I prepared this week in study, I realized that this passage was the first passage I preached at in a church. When I was an intern at the church I grew up in, uh, the summer that Rebecca and I got married. And not only is it the first uh, sermon I preached, but... Uh, This passage has played a significant role in my understanding of what it is to be part of the church since. This passage is central uh, to my understanding of the communion of saints, which my dissertation was on. I say that because as God has shown me my need of the church, my need of community, uh, this passage has become near and dear to me. And so my prayer this morning is that what I have to say may reflect all the truth of this passage for me, but that this would not be an opportunity for me to share all I know or to share all that this passage means for me, but this would be a time where God speaks to his people from his word. 
So let's pray that that is the case this morning, that the church is built up by God's word. God, our Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we come to you, triune God, to receive your holy word, that we would worship you by receiving what you offer, by acknowledging our need and your provision in your word. Lord, there is much that I could say, there is much that I would want to say, there is much you have shown me from this passage and in my life. I pray that that which is helpful that you have for your people would be that which I speak, and all that falls short would be quickly forgotten, like the chaff upon the wind. Be glorified as you speak in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We often struggle with the difference between perception and reality. The way we view things or think about things versus the way that they really are. And sometimes it doesn't really matter. We might think that person was waving to us when they were really waving to someone else, but it really doesn't cause a problem unless we embarrass ourselves waving back. But, but sometimes the misalignment of perception and reality can have more significant consequences. There's a video from a restaurant in Brazil of people enjoying an evening meal out on the sidewalk in front of the restaurant. Multiple diners, the tables are full, people are having a good time. And there's no sound in the video, it's just video, but you see a couple of heads turn and look in one direction over the sidewalk. You see people begin to stop eating and one or two individuals stands up and, and they begin to slowly walk the opposite direction down the sidewalk. And, and as they walk away, other people, and then within a few moments, the co sidewalk has been completely emptied of all the people dying at the restaurant as they flee in one direction down the sidewalk. What, what you don't see, at least in the opening images of that video, is a group of men jogging, running in their direction. In Brazil, there are often times where people are mugged on the street even by gangs of people who swoop in and take their things, especially when they're all gathered together. Their perception was that, that these men were either running at them to steal from them or they were running from a greater threat. The only threat that they posed was that they might want to talk to you about the benefits of CrossFit. They were CrossFitters on a run that just be, happened to be... In, picking up their pace from a walk to a jog, and what the people saw was not a group of men exercising, they saw a threat. And that perception led to the consequences. The Corinthians are struggling with an alignment between perception and reality. Their understanding of what the church is and what it's meant to be. How they see it versus how it really is. And part of this perception has been shaped by their past. They have come out of the Greco-Roman culture where they have various associations and groups where you get together with people with similar jobs to cooperate for uh, the encouragement of the trade or the craft. They're used to getting together to better reflect social strength. They see those groups as serving the ends of increasing their success or their prominence or their comfort. Thus, their perception is that difference or diversity can be a threat. 
they see that time and attention given to the weak or to the poor or to the vulnerable among them as weakening that association. And so as the church is embracing men and women who are not just freeborn citizens but slaves, not just rich, not just powerful and influential, but the poor and the needy, the slave, they see it as a threat. But that's not the truth. The truth is the church is not an assembly held together by uniformity. It's not a disparate group of individuals who are cooperating only so long as it benefits their self-interest and their goals for self-actualization. Now what Scripture tells us, what the truth is, what Paul is pointing the Corinthians to, this truth is that the church is one. The church is one body, united in Christ, baptized in the Spirit, drinking from the same spiritual source for its life. In John 17, Jesus, preaches, uh, Jesus prays the high, what we call the high priestly prayer. And during that prayer, Jesus prays that the church would be one. How does the Father respond to the prayers of His perfect Son? He answers them. And if there is any doubt as to whether God has answered that prayer, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, who has witnessed the risen Lord, who has gone around preaching the gospel, says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of one body, though many are one body, God has answered that prayer and through the Spirit, in whom they have been baptized, in whom they find their spiritual nourishment in Christ, Jesus has made, God has made the church one. It may not look that way. With these various groups of people, with their various backgrounds, with their various languages, with their various classes, with their various gifts. But that perception is not reality. They are one. That just as we are made holy, we are declared holy. In Christ, we are holy, we are sanctified, and yet we are working out that sanctification in this life. So the church is one, and yet we are working out that reality. We are asking Christ to conform us to that reality that he has made us one. And so this morning, we are called to resist treating our perceptions over reality. We can believe that hurting people destroy the church. That weak people weaken the church. That poor people make the church poor. Or that rich people make the church rich. Or that powerful people make the church powerful. Who makes the church? Christ. And Christ, through His Spirit, has made the church one. The text says that Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, are all, are all part of this glorious communion of the saints, the body of Christ, the church. The identity, the value, the strength of the church comes not from our status, not from our background, not even from our cooperation. It comes from Christ. He has called us. He has saved us. He has joined us together by the Spirit. 
And so the question this morning, brothers and sisters, is not, will we accomplish the unity of the church? But will we live according to the unity of the church that Christ has accomplished? Will we reflect that reality? Will we conform our perceptions to that reality? Will we respond to that reality in the way that we live together, in the way that we minister together, in the way that we worship together? When we live according to the reality that Christ has made the church one, we realize that the church needs us. The church needs me. The church needs you. But also we realize that conversely, you need the church. I need the church. And according to the understanding that Christ has made us one, then we will seek that which serves the body. First, this morning, we see that the church needs you. Now, let me clarify. I am not saying Jesus needs you. God does not need you. God is not lacking in any way, form, or fashion. Jesus can accomplish all his holy will according to his power and strength in his eternal being. But the church needs you. Because the church has been designed by Christ to have you as a part of it. Your salvation, your faith in Jesus Christ, is an indication that Christ has determined to place you in the church. And so the church needs you, according to the design of God. Because Christ has placed you in the church, the church needs you. It's meant for your presence. It's meant for your participation. Look at verses 14 through 20 with me here. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Which seems more prominent there? In society, you know, strength is, in the Roman society, in the Greek society, even the Jewish society, strength and a will and the ability to accomplish things is primarily placed upon the hand. The foot is lower down. The foot is that which travels through that which is dirty. So there's this perspective from below saying, I'm a foot. Do I belong because I'm not a hand? Because I'm not an eye. Part of the head. Prominent. I'm not part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? It wouldn't be a body. It would just be one body part. And if the Adams family has taught us anything, a disembodied hand does not comfort us. It seems strange. And it would be strange, it would be inappropriate for us to disconnect ourselves from the body because we're not like the rest of the body. Notice the reason, though. It's because Christ has chosen you to be a member of the, Christ, of the body, because he has appointed the members of the body in the arrangement and the manner in which he has chosen you, that you, that the church needs you. It's not because you are necessarily recognized. Your gifts, your ministry, your personhood, it's 
integral to the fabric of the church because Christ has set the pattern of the tapestry, which includes you and who you are and how he has designed you and your gifts. But the perception may be that we don't matter to the church, that the church doesn't need us. Certain people, certain gifts, certain perspectives, certain values might be more important in a given group of believers, and so we may feel that we aren't needed. Perhaps you've been away in the past and no one's noticed your lack of presence. Or your gifts have not been recognized, or there doesn't seem to be a place where you fit. Emily acknowledged that this has been a thread of the recent trend that we describe as deconstruction, where more and more young people are leaving the church, and it's often because they feel like they have no place there. The, the older people don't understand me. There's no place for me to use my gifts. I, I don't matter. There's no room for their questions, their differences, their imagination. And, and while that might need to be corrected, while the church might need to change its arrangement and its operation to include their gifts, to acknowledge their personalities, to give room for their questions and imagination, the, the answer to that is not the response of the church. The answer is Christ. The extent to which the church recognizes their need of us does not determine the truth of the matter. God does. Read verse 18 again with me. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. The Corinthians, especially the wealthy and the powerful, the ones suing each other over property rights, the ones who are able to afford to go listen to these great orators and expect everyone to speak with those same skills, they are acting like, hey, we don't need those poor people. They can have their own communion service. To those people, to you this morning, God says, he has chosen you. He has placed you in the body. The church needs you whether they recognize it or not. Don't let the other's perception of their need of us speak louder than God's word. Now, when I say that, that the church needs us, I'm not saying that we should assume that we are the savior of the church. When I say that the church needs me, the church needs you, I am not talking you on your own. We are not the Christ. We are not the Savior of the church. The church has been designed to have our presence and our participation in it. But the hope of the church is not us. It's Christ. Our role may be in helping the church be more like Christ when they serve us in our weakness and need. Verses 22 through 25 talk about weaker parts of the body that are indispensable. Parts of the body that need more clothing in order to be presentable. They talk about parts of the body that require more modesty. Brothers and sisters, some of us may be that part of the body. Where the church needs us not because of our great skill, our wisdom, our strength, our money. They might need us because in putting up with us, the church learns to be the church. I have a two-year-old in my home. 
And the thing about two-year-olds is they love to say no. They say it a lot. Sometimes they mean it, but not always. When I ask if my two-year-old needs a nap, almost indefinitely, the answer is no. His perception, at least his communicated perception, is that he doesn't need a nap. My question is, should I let that answer dictate the reality of his need? Or when he's tired and rubbing his eyes and annoying his siblings, should I say, yeah, you say you don't, but you do. When the church acts like it doesn't need us, we don't feel that we have a place there. We need to not let the silence of the church speak louder than what the Word of God says, that the church needs us. And so whether that's attending Sunday school or going to Bible studies, whether that's being in Sunday morning worship, whether that's serving in an outreach ministry, whether that's just going and being with other brothers and sisters in the church and fellowship and encouragement and prayer together, you may look at those things and say, I don't know what I get out of that. I've read the Bible seven times. I can quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism to you. Man, I did that video series 15 years ago. Are you looking at the lens of whether the church might need you there? They might need your knowledge or they might need your questions. They might need your maturity or your immaturity. The first and foremost question is not what we get out of it, but how, as God has shaped us and designed us, might the church benefit from our presence and our participation? The church needs you. And you need the church. Verse 21 through 22 changes the perspective. From earlier, the perspective is from below, from less significant uh, sensory organs, from lower prominence parts of the body, but now it switches from above. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head down to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Paul is telling the church that there may be bits of the body that you think are unimportant, are less than, that require too much effort, that just mess things up or just seem wrong because they're not like you. When you're tempted to amputate, when you're tempted to discard, we are to be reminded that because God has shaped the church, because God has in Christ, through his spirit, made the church one, we need the body, all of it. We need to not disconnect ourselves or disconnect others from it because we don't perceive that need, but rather we need to let our need, as God declares it, allow us to continue to participate in the church because we need it. The forming of the body of Christ of many members united together is his wise and providential plan for his glory. None of us on our own is sufficient for the mission. Eyes or the head are not sufficient to be the body of Christ. Even a very gifted individual, think of a very gifted soloist, they may be able to sing, but no matter how powerful that gift of song, they cannot duplicate, they cannot recreate the effect of a beautiful chorus singing together. 
And we may be severely gifted. We may be very important to the church, at least in our eyes. But however strong, however gifted, however well-resourced, we are insufficient for the work that God has given His church. In the very beginning, God makes Adam and He gives him a great purpose to multiply, to have dominion, to bear His image in the world. If Adam, who was without sin, was insufficient to the task without Eve, what makes us think that we can fulfill the mission that God has called us on, on our own? None of us are sufficient to the task. And so he gives different tasks, different abilities, different personalities, different gifts within the church. Not just within the church when we gather on Sunday morning, when we do Sunday school or nursery, where we're teaching kids or we're cleaning up the church building, but the work of the church is glorifying God in all creation. We might deceive ourselves. what oh, We can get by with, without those gifts in a single church, but can we be the church universal? Can we be proclaiming the good news of the gospel in every aspect of our life to all the nations, to people of every tribe, nation, and tongue on our own? Of course not. But sometimes we act that way. I'm not talking about diversity for the sake of diversity, but diversity according to the design of God, to the glory of God as we fulfill the calling of God together through our shared worship, through our shared ministry, our shared service. Some of us, in the way that we operate, acknowledge this by our words, but not with our actions. And so let me put it another way. How does Christ describe the church? As a temple? of many stones built together in order to be a dwelling place for His presence. As we see in this passage, one body of many members and Ephesians as the bride of Christ. Together, the bride of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are not the brides of Christ. None of us on our own is sufficient to bring about the Christ-glorifying work of being the bride of Christ, sanctified, beautified, without blemish, to be delighted in. But Jesus, for His delight, has formed you and me and us together of various skills, of various backgrounds, of various giftings, of various ministries, because only together would we even come close to being fitting to be the bride of Christ in whom he delights and is coming to celebrate the great wedding supper of the Lamb. How can we testify to the mission of God to gather all sorts of people into his eternal family when we don't spend time with that eternal family? And not just the people that we say, well, of course I need them. That, that person is a gifted evangelist. I'm not, so I need that evangelist. Or that person's a good preacher. Or, or they teach a mean Sunday school. But we need all of the church, including the poor, the weak, and the difficult. The passage says we need them. They may seem to be burdens. They may seem to be obstacles. They may seem to require more effort and a drain on us. But the passage says they're a necessity. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting here is that Paul is flipping the script on the body member analogy. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, 
a gifted and brilliant man on his own part, did not come up with this body member analogy. It existed far before him. You can find it in philosophy and political speech. But here's the thing that's different. When you read those philosophers, when you read those politicians, when they use the body member analogy, it's to tell the rest of the members, the weak members, the feet, the slaves, the poor, hey, you need to get along. You need to cooperate with those important people, the political leaders, the rich, the citizens, so that society can function. Paul is flipping the script to say, hey, you people on top, you eyes, you perceived heads, you cannot function without the poor and the weak and the vulnerable among you. Verse 22 through 24, he describes, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. He's probably talking about internal organs. You know, our hearts, our lungs, they're behind a rib cage to protect them. They are vulnerable, but we can't live without them. Just because we clothe parts of our bodies doesn't mean they're not important. It talks about the parts of the body that are less presentable. These are the parts that even in our society today, however free we are, we still cover up. Does the fact that we cover up the parts of our bodies that function in reproduction mean that they don't matter? No, that modesty is because they matter so much to the ongoing life of our race. The perception that they're weak, the perception that they're not as presentable in public, they're not as polished, they're not as put together, does not equate their value. In fact, on the contrary, they have been opportunities for God to display His glory as He has done what is necessary to make them presentable. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God has so composed, giving greater honor means that whatever our starting place, whether we have grown up in a religious home and we're familiar with the Bible, whether we're well-spoken and presentable and the church would want us to be representatives of Christ, or we're ignorant, or we're struggling with old wounds, or we're struggling financially, or we don't meet the picture, God has knit us together and so worked so that we can all share in the same glory of being the body of Christ. This pictures God's work throughout Scripture. When God tells Israel, Hey Israel, I have called you to be my unique treasure, my unique possession. They're like, yeah. Go us. Until he goes on, And I've chosen you not because you're strong, not because you're rich or powerful, but because you are the weakest and the least numerous, so that I might show my power. When Paul wants the thorn in his flesh to be taken away, what does God say? Yeah, I'll use you as soon as you're healed. No, he, he points out that in his weakness, God is able to demonstrate his glory. One of the blessings of those that appear weaker or who need more ministry or more help is that it demonstrates the greater power of God. That the hope of the body of Christ is not a few presentable people, not a bunch of shiny, happy, smiley people, but all of those who find their honor and their glory in what Christ has done in bringing them to himself and together in him. The work of Christ is pictured 
in making us acceptable. And so we need the body so that we can be like Christ, so that we can minister to those that are weak, to those that are suffering, that are vulnerable, that are poor, that are less knowledgeable, less shiny. We can be like Christ in filling up what is lacking and making the church a place where they can function, where we can invite them in. It takes work for you to listen to a sermon when small children are making noise. It doesn't just happen. But you are covering over their unpresentable behavior and affirming that though the perception is that they are discouraging our worship, that what we are pointing to is the greater work of the body of Christ, all members coming together. And so when you put up with the coups and the cries, you are showing the work of Christ. When we make the church a place for the weak and the poor and the vulnerable and the addicted, as well as the educated and the well-married, we testify to the work of Christ. These men and women are indispensable because those we overlook, though, often show us the gospel the most. In a society that affirmed the aged and the mature, Jesus invited the little children to himself and blessed them and said, to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. Not to the Pharisees and scribes who've studied years and years and memorized the whole Torah, but these children who are yet to be shaped and formed that they show. So very often it is, in the history of the church, it is the poor and the weak, the slave and the medically vulnerable that God uses. The church blew up, not among the wealthy and the powerful, but among the poor in the Roman Empire. Because when Rome said you have nothing, when Rome said you don't matter, when Rome says the empire is not for you, but you for the empire, they found in Christ the only thing that they could hold on to. When they didn't have power, when they didn't have wealth, when they didn't have influence. So often it is those that seem the weakest, most societally undesirable that God seeks out, that Jesus sought out one-on-one to show his glory. But also because their needs are providentially used of God to grant a faith that clings to him, no matter what earthly honor, power, or resources we have. And so in doing, they teach the rest of us to view ourselves not through how presentable we are, but how presentable Christ makes us by his perfect righteousness, by his sacrifice on the cross. The truth is that because we are bound together, we suffer together. Just like a little toe stubbed or injured, it only hurts the toe, but when you begin to walk gingerly on the toe, your foot begins to hurt and other muscles begin to hurt and your back can even begin to ache. It's just a stubbed toe, but it can resonate through the whole body. Paul isn't saying you should feel bad when others are hurt. He is saying this is the reality. You need the church. And and sometimes that reality of suffering because others suffer or hurting because others are hurting or, or people are not sufficiently sanctified that we struggle with that, that we will disconnect. But then that means that we miss out on the converse statement that Paul makes here, that when one part of the body is honored, we all rejoice. This wasn't on my resume when I applied for the job here, but in my household, In the family I grew up in, I am the thumb wrestling champion. 
I have long thumbs and they are exceedingly flexible. And every time I beat my sister, and even more so when I beat my dad in thumb wrestling, I felt good. Now, I might say it was the thumb that accomplished that. But being able to best my dad at something at a young age filled the rest of me with pride. And, and when a lowly person is honored, or a gifted missionary gives testimony, or a child makes profession of faith, or someone cleans the bathrooms to the glory of God, when we disconnect ourselves from the church, we miss out on an opportunity to rejoice. Brothers and sisters, the church needs us, and we need the church. We need to confess our pride and arrogance when we think we can do it on our own. Because if we think that way about the church, we begin to end up thinking that way about Christ. Rather, we need to come to church. We need to go to the rest of the church to spend time with the church family, to expand our view of the church, to work not only within this church together, but with other churches. And let me say, if there's someone in the church that you don't know, or for some reason has rubbed you the wrong way, or maybe even feels like a burden to the church, let me encourage you, take them out for lunch. Take them out for coffee. Invite them over for dinner or ask if you can come over to their house. Because you need them. If they are in Christ. Christ has placed them in the church for your good, for the good of the church. So seek them out to see what God has in store for his church, for his glory in that relationship. And then lastly, we need to seek the gifts which serve the body. Paul states the point he's been making in verses 27 through 30. He says, just as there's not one type of person, there's also not one type of gifting. Not one type of ministry, because we're one body with many members. And while the passage that we've been looking at has been primarily talking about the different types of people, he circles back to the issue of gifts that he started talking about earlier in chapter 12 and verses 1 through 11. And so having understood that the body is not about personal prominence, it's not about uniformity, but our unity in Christ displayed in a God-appointed diversity of people and gifts, then the conclusion is that we must seek the gifts, not which point to our personal prominence, not point to our personal significance or experience, but we need to seek the gifts which bless the body in whom is our blessing as Christ has appointed. This pushes against our pride, our status. We need to seek what is good for the body. Now, he just said all the gifts matter, but then in this pa passage, in these few verses, it seems, he seem, seems to rank the, the gifts, right? He says, well, there's one body and individual members, but God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then he goes on and on. First of all, let me say, this is not a hard ranking. Because if we go to other lists of gifts that Paul makes, he puts them in different order. This doesn't seem to be a once-and-all-for-all all ranking where he says, okay, apostleship at the top, interpretation of, of tongues at the bottom. Second, he's not necessarily talking about offices, though he seems to kind of embody the offices as he talks about apostles and prophets and teachers. He then is talking about gifts of mercy and healing and tongues. And so he's not saying, 
the most important gift to the church is apostleship. Because he's earlier talked about the basis of apostleship is having witnessed the risen Christ. And he views himself as the last true apostle. So he's not talking about church offices. But the passage does seem to say there's something about these first three. Because he ranks them and then the grammar changes and he just lists the other. And when we pay attention to these, we'll notice something similar about these. That these three gifts, apostleship, prophecy, teaching, they all circle around making the word of God known to his people. The good news that Christ is risen from the dead with conquest over our sins. The prophetic instruction of God for his people. The teaching and explanation of God's word for the edification of the people. This helps us understand what verse 31 is saying. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Given this quasi-ranking, what Paul says about gifts later in chapter 14, Paul is talking about gifts which instruct the people in God's word for their edification. Healing and miracles may awe. Tongues may impress, but they don't necessarily transform. It wasn't Jesus' miracles that convinced the crowds. They was helped, but plenty of crowds saw signs and wonders and healings and walked away from Jesus. Rather, it was the word of God working in their heart by the Spirit that changed them. And so Paul is saying, some of you think that the church just needs to be full of people speaking tongues. Because that seems impressive. That seems spiritual. It seems like you're like the angels. But seek the higher gifts. The gifts that reflect the truth of God for the good of all of God's people. So what is Paul telling the church? If these aren't your gifts, you don't matter? No. That would be, incompl- that would be completely inconsistent with what he said earlier. Part of it is we notice that while we might often associate one of these gifts with one person, they're not necessarily limited to one gift. Paul was an apostle, but he also healed and performed miracles, and so did Peter. And so, in one sense, he is saying, if you seem gifted in one way, don't limit yourself to just that gift, to the gift of service, or to the gift of prayer, to the gift of mercy and administration. Seek the gifts to be useful in the proclaiming of the word to one another, to discipleship and instruction. And even if it's not seeking it for ourselves, we would seek it for the rest of the body. The word that's translated seek here, or earnestly desire, is the word that's elsewhere translated envy, and other places zeal. Paul might be softly pointing out, hey, you guys are jealous You are zealous, you desire most, you are prideful most about your preaching or your speaking in tongues. Your zeal needs to be for the church to have the word. It's not only desire for yourself, but it can be desire for the church. He's saying even if you aren't gifted in this way, your desire shouldn't be your ability to be prominent in the church, but for the church to be built up in those gifts which point them towards Christ. Mercy is so much more powerful when we can point directly to what God's word says of God's mercy. Prayerful intercession, when we pray earnestly and we see someone restored or healed or forgiven or reconciled, is so much more powerful when we point to the shepherd who cares for the flock. 
our gifts should not be opportunities for us to demonstrate our importance. We should be seeking the gifts that serve the body because we are one. Brothers and sisters, as we walk this walk, consider this, this biological fact. It takes 200 muscles to take one step. To lift the toes and the foot, to place them, to lift the leg and set them down. As the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If that is true of our body physically, biologically, how much more so are we fearfully and wonderfully made in the fact that Christ has made us one body in his spirit? If that is true, brothers and sisters, not if it's true, since it's true, then would we walk as part of the body, contributing to the body and receiving for the body and seeking that which is to the good of the body because in that brings glory to Christ who has made us one. Let's pray. Father, many have been my words. I pray that that which remains is glorifying to you and that we would walk out of here this morning worshiping you as many members made one in Christ. Amen.